Be kind. Rewind. This is Dope Nostalgia. It's time for episode 135 of Dope Nostalgia Podcast, and I'm your host, Naomi. Excuse my hoarseness, I have a bit of a cold, but uh, getting through, getting things done. And our very, very special guest today is none other than Law, L-A-W, a multi-talented musician who has worked with legends like George Clinton and Amy Winehouse and so many more. You can find his music online, the album, The Planet 12 Syndrome. And he has a lot more new music, too. You can find it out on his SoundCloud. Go to L star A star W and check him out on his SoundCloud page. Seven-time Grammy nominee, two-time indie award-winning singer, rapper, multi-instrumentalist, producer, songwriter, and choreographer. He's a man of many talents, and he's here to join us today. We're going to get right into that interview. Check it out. Welcome, Law, to the show. Law! Planet 12 saga continues. DJ Khalifa Weapon. What up, Dizo? What up, Wild Man? Casino Chip. My man, Rusty Jooks. DJ Lady K. I see you, baby. This is for you. Let's get into this. Ladies and gentlemen, you are now listening to Lyrical Assault Weapon, loving all women too No matter which way you slice it, LA dubs the nicest Singer slash MC that's killing mic devices Most talented kid in the biz on the scene now Five foot ten lyricist with a mean style Just in case you missed it, I get vicious with the freestyles Any nigga that tried to compete must be seen now The Captain Kirk of this starship enterprise With a flow colder than the North Pole with the skies It turns into summer and sparking from a heat flash Irritating niggas like an unexpected heat rash. They're gonna need more than quarters on the clear it up Stages like a paper so you know I'm gonna tear it up Smear it up like mascara on a model chick Even the casita ones who didn't want to swallow now it Brooklyn's the place where the L.A.W. dwells well, well. But Brooklyn ain't nothing without the Hey, Law! <laughs> hey! Hello! What up, woman? <laughs> How What's are going you? On? Finally, oh. right? <laughs> Finally made this happen. That's amazing. Man, the the the, the background is giving me 1986 um school photo vibes. That's you know what I know. Going for. <laughs> Completely. This is why Completely. I love y'all guys. I miss this, those. This is why I absolutely from from the first time I got wind of who you were and what you were doing. This is why, because I knew this if it's, if it's going to be a podcast that I want to be on, it was going to be this one, you know, on, on all cylinders. Oh, man, that means a lot. Thank you. Dope Nostalgia, we're doing well. It's our second year. We're almost into our third and it's growing fast. Awesome. So I'm so awesome. happy that you agreed to be a part of it. Thank you. Are you are you very welcome, man, because I, I love the work that y'all are doing out here we, in times like these we need things as a reminder and especially um you know Nas always said nostalgic with the state of mind but people didn't understand what he meant because it's things like this that remind you just how far you've actually come as an individual and collectively so it's just it, it warms my spirit I'm last said oh my god those are my favorite movies <laughs> like it's just you know these are things that I talk about on a regular basis with my fans in general and then even with my mm -hmm. friends still to this day so it's some, it's the stuff that made us right. You know, made yeah. us who we are and what we enjoyed and, and, uh, always, always fond memories. So thank you for that. And 
wonderful. Well, welcome to Dope Nostalgia. Uh, I want to know about your roots, your musical beginnings, how everything started for you. Where did you grow up? Where did it all come well, from? As you can see by the hats, mm-hmm. I am definitely the pride of my hometown. Or as the legendary Ed Norton of the Honeymooners once said, I'm from the garden spot in the world, AKA Brooklyn, USA, Albany Project, St. Mark's Avenue, Crown Heights, Brooklyn hood boy, forever, without question. This is where it all started for me. Excellent. And who were you listening to at the time you were growing up and developing your tastes? Well, that's just the thing because, you know, considering my legendary family already being in the business, um, rest in peace to my legendary grandfather, Blues Hall of Famer, Sam, Bland, Sam Blues Man Taylor, and my late uncle, Bobby Real Deal Taylor. I, um, my family was my Juilliard for music. So in the, the non-typical household of the Taylors and even the Warrells, you heard everything from the Ozzy Brothers to Spiral Gyra to Ambrosia to Kenny Loggins. You know, like we were, you know, this, this was pretty much my upbringing up until heavy metal and hip hop came along. So everything of my roots in terms of um, gospel, my legendary uncle, the Reverend Charles Taylor. So that's already in my, that was already in my DNA. And then of course, because I started singing, my first audience besides my family was the church. You know, I grew up, I grew up, Bas- I grew up, I grew up Bas- Baptist Pentecostal before I became non-denominational. So we heard everything from the Hawkins family the Wines family, even down to Sad- Sandy Patty and Amy Grant. That's how deep we yeah. were. Like, we literally went from um, all avenues of every genre of music. That's why I say my family's my Judy are for music because um, I was exposed to a lot in my household. And then considering all the traveling family members that I had, you know, your distant cousins, you would go to their house. I heard the first reggae records being pressed up in Brooklyn before it became dance hall reggae. So it's like... I grew up in the thick of all that. So this is my formative years from the ages of, let's say, um, three all the way till about 12 years old, which hence the name Planet 12. And I know we'll get into that later. But just that whole period was me constantly studying, hanging around the OGs, even down to my, my, my Brooklyn my, my, my Brooklyn legends, the ones who my mother actually sang with, Brass Construction, Crown Heights Affair, um, Sky, Unlimited Touch, you know, these, these are the cats that, or as you say, cats, these are the cats that raised me. So, you know, mm-hmm. on a lot of different levels, that's what it became for me. This really became a great thing for me. And that's when you were soaking in all your influences and creating what you were going to do with your future, right? Yeah. So, so what was happening for you in the 90s as this podcast is very focused on that decade? What, what was in, going on? In the 90s. <laughs> wow. This is why I love this podcast, because (laughs) the 90s for me growing up in Brooklyn, because as everybody knows about our town, you know, we're very notorious on a lot of different levels. Um, I mean, y'all hear all the Biggie, Jay-Z, Biggie and Jay-Z songs, but what people fail to realize is that that's just them speaking from the perspective of what we already knew. But you have to live there to understand the type of the type of shit that we were dealing with. So just yeah. more so in that, we came up raw. So there's the street aspect, there's the um the the dare to be different aspect, but still had to maintain 
a certain type of composure because, you know, even though you love to laugh and smile, you couldn't afford to laugh and smile all the time because there, there was a, there was a war going on on a lot of different levels. A lot of people were dealing with the Gulf War and their situation. There was a war on the streets in Brooklyn. You know, you had all the all the all the kids of my generation became the new age hustlers. And once, you know, the crack epidemic hit the streets, it changed the innocent of most young black kids forever. Not just Brooklyn either. I mean, Queens, Manhattan, mm -hmm. Staten Island. That's why when you look at people like Nas and, and Wu-Tang, we all got the same story, just different avenue parts of it. And being that mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of that up front growing up in between everything else. So music was always a safe haven for me on a lot of different levels because I watched a lot of my friends get caught up in the street life, even family members as well. And the thing is, is that you make decisions according to that, where you knew you had to find your angle. You're not afraid of it because I'm street all day, but I knew that this wasn't going to be my final destination. So mm. um, God used music to save my life and to save me from the street. But in the 90s, outside of that, I was your typical Brooklyn kid, man. You know, we, we you know, everything for me was all about, you know, running home to watch Beverly Hills 90210 or, um, you know, like certain things that were coming out, Batman, the animated series, you know, DuckTales, all that stuff. Like nice. that stuff for me, you know, and then musically, forget about it. I, I say all the time, 80s was very, and this is my personal opinion. So people who will see this podcast, uh, you can get mad. I really don't give a shit. You know, I don't care about any of that. <laughs> Here's the thing. With all, with, with all due respect to the errors that came before our errors, the 80s and especially the, the 90s, in my humble opinion, was the most diverse era for mm. music. Even though the record labels played the demographic game, which is the reason why a lot of people thought that New Kids on the Block was a manufactured group, which we knew that they weren't. But, you know, to the world, we didn't have social media. So nobody knew the information, the history of New Kids on the Block as well as Vanilla Ice. So people were already making assumptions and putting these things on them without knowing the full details. All we know is what we saw in the interview, what they were told to say. So yeah. growing up in the 90s, it gave me a lot of freedom because you gotta remember, look at my dilemma. I'm a real singer that happens to be a real MC that happens to be a real musician who can really dance. So mm -hmm. think about my whole plethora. One minute, it's Nirvana and Stone Temple Pilots and Sonic Youth. Next minute, it's Biggie, Jay-Z, Nas, Wu-Tang. In other cases, it's New Kids on the Block, you know, and there's some of the other groups. And of course, you know, your Boys to Men, your... See, I always talk about the Boys to Men, Jodeci, Silk, High Five era, because the, the same way how the stylistics and the dramatics and sensations mm -hmm. was my mother's era of R&B, when it comes to R&B groups, this was our era. We find we yes. finally had a we finally had an era that 20 years from now we will be talking about. Hence the point why we're here now, because now we can talk about stuff from 20 to 25 years ago that's still resonating with all this resurgence of um of 90. I love the I love the 90s tours and all these guys are still out here. Well, most of them, so all these guys are still out here kicking ass and touring and putting out new music, and we get to enjoy that part of it with them because it's almost like it's nostalgic but look at where we're still going i mean we still yeah. have a we still have a voice and i always represent that's why i created a page on my facebook page called um on one of my facebook um group pages is called um 80s 80s baby 90s kid because i want to talk about the movies that we like no matter how cheesy and corny or how um what's the word predictable they were we loved yeah. them anyway whether it was reality bites 
Can't Buy Me Love, even though that's like late, that's late 80s. But to me, late 80s is still 90s because that's yeah. the continuation of, of where we were going in that. When you look at movies like Three O'Clock High and, and you know, like all that stuff that was coming out during that period. And then sitcoms, I mean, Married with Children. That's like in my number three, as much as I love The Honeymooners, which is my number one. But then we had a bunch of shows that us 90s babies and kids can gravitate towards too. Yes. So, yeah. A hundred percent, hundred percent. I remember loving Cosby's as well as Full House. Yes. You know, these kinds of sitcoms and then like Family yes. Matters. All of that is just classic and important. Thank God it's Friday, Channel 7, New York. You know, I know. That's why I was like, see what I mean? <laughs> and, the, and the pure irony because Darius McCray, who plays Eddie Winslow, that's one of my very, very good friends. So oh, wonderful. How, interestingly, how interestingly enough, because people don't realize, um, I, I was a fan of Darius before Family Matters. I was a fan of Darius when he was in a movie called Big Shots because it, he was 13 years old. You know why I love that movie? Because it reminded me a lot of me and my brother. Like, even though we played innocent in front of my mother's friends and all the, and most of the, the women in the neighborhood that knew us as the Taylor boys or the Taylor girls and all that stuff, you know, in the words of Britney Spears, we really weren't that innocent. I think we knew how to play <laughs> nice when it came to that. So Big Shots reminded me of that so how funny is and then of course Darius is an incredible singer people don't know his family mm. um his family is famous in the industry too like mine is so we we bonded very quickly so it's funny you bring up family matters full house all yeah. these amazing shows that still stand the test of time Martin I mean to this yeah. day I mean look on VH1 and MTV you gonna laugh I'm gonna let you know a little secret a lot of a lot of my fans don't know this about me I mean they know it but a lot of people I never said it publicly before most of the time when I'm done in the studio working out or working on content or whatever the case may be, it could be three o'clock in the morning. The fastest way for me to fall asleep is when they show reruns of all the Martins and the, the Married with Children. I fall asleep real quick over an episode that I actually love because I, there's a certain comfortability that lays in my brain mm. while I'm asleep, but I'll be laughing in my sleep. I can literally hear the joke with my eyes closed. So. Oh. <laughs> Oh, that's nice. That's like a positive way to have some uh, good yes. dreams. <laughs> I had, a, and I definitely had a thing. I think I liked Fresh Prince, like Fresh Prince of Bel Air, probably, <laughs> probably even more so than Full House because I was a little bit too. I was start. I was fourteen, fifteen, I guess, when Full House was coming out. Uh -huh. So, so I I was starting to see the cheesiness, but it was still good family television. <laughs> I mean, but that's the thing what made those shows so great because, you know, whether they were white based or black based, you can mm -hmm. easily relate to something. There are certain things yeah. in shows. I mean, even if we go back to some of the 80s shows like Facts of Life, I mean, that mm -hmm. was probably one of the, especially for young women, that was one of the most diverse shows because mm -hmm. they had all these, you got these five girls from all different walks of life. Yes. which is crazy. And then they all relating into certain scenarios, same thing with different strokes. Like you had all these, um, mm. these the integrated TV shows that gave you the balance. And it's been criticized over the years. And they'll be like, oh, that wasn't believable. I said, well, you know what? Honestly, I don't really care if it was believable to one person or not, but it's something that if you're really in tune to who you are as a person, you related to these episodes. There were a lot of different things that you can pull from it. A lot of things you learned from it. You know, whether it was the whole um, say no to drugs campaign or yeah. or um, or serial rape, you know, a lot of different things that people mm -hmm. were pretty much scared to talk about. And those were daring shows back then, because nowadays, you know, everything is just here you go. Reality TV show. We're going to put everything out there 
and we don't give a shit. It's, it's so back then it was an anticipation and knowing that those shows you were going to either laugh your ass off or you were going to learn something in that paraphrase. And the same thing with Full House. I mean, whereas Beverly Hills 90210 and Melrose Place, that was our soap operas. That was the just straight up good drama. The same <laughs> way how our mothers and, and our, well, um, some of our fathers, yeah, I don't know, my, my father wasn't in the stories, but um, definitely my grandmother and my aunts, but some of our mothers and aunts who were into All My Children, Days yeah. of Our Lives, General Hospital, that's what Beverly Hills 90210 and Melrose Place was for us. Drama upon drama with, with a new way of looking at stuff. Yeah. You know, it's just a lot of that. And then you can't forget probably my favorite number one variety show of all time because in Living Color, to me, yeah. I mean, no, no disrespect to Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live is definitely important and it was funny, but in Living Color took it to a whole nother level because it's a Black-based show that had two white comedians where no one was safe. See, back then, you could say whatever, <laughs> you could make fun of people, and even though they would get offended, nobody really cared. Nowadays, yeah. you can't say shit anymore. You can't even, it's to a point, people are so sensitive now. You can't even get to a point. But back then, it was no holes barred. To, the, to this very day, those episodes are still, they still have me. Like when Jim Carrey does Jimmy Swagger, like that's, that's <laughs> your Michael Bolton. I, I literally had tears in my eyes. When I, when, I, when I need a good laugh and I'm not feeling yeah. at my best during the day, I will throw on either Looney Tunes box set, Pink Panther cartoon box set, or definitely the whole In Living Color or Martin or, or Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I, I throw on any one of those things to, to cheer me up and to, and to make me laugh. And honestly, to get me throughout the day, because a, um, a lot of writing goes into what I do in terms of being a songwriter of multiple genres. And to be honest with you, those TV shows and, of course, you know, um, all the music from the 90s, whether it be grunge rock, alternative, R&B, hip hop, um, pop, boy band stuff, all that stuff influences a lot of my writing. And it sometimes helps dictate where I need where, where I need to go for the matter of the song. So when it, when a song comes up and it has a little bit of a of a new kids, backstreet, boys to men kind of flavor, I kind of go with that. But if it's going into a Neil Young, Pearl Jam um helmet um corn direction that's I, I go with that that's so cool like just just the fact that you can go in any direction with the sounds i like that a lot thank now, you i appreciate it music diversity is sexy and the funk the funk how did you develop a relationship with the legend george clinton ah the funk i mean well first and foremost before we even get into the george clinton part of it let me just say that Without question, even though I'm known for multiple genres, it's safe to say that many of my fans and and people and supporters that know me, if they don't, they if they they know if nothing else, when they come to a law show, we can do all these different things, but the main things you're always going to get without question is the funk rock and the hip hop. So I, I take mm -hmm. that proudly, and considering that. Um, I have legendary uncles in this genre, such as my um, legendary uncle, um, Tony T. Funk Austin, who played with James Brown and Cool in the Gang. So I, I was raised yeah. in it. And then my legendary grandfather, though he was known for blues, his biggest success was with the 70s funk group BT Express that were known for their hit Do It To You Satisfied, which was their million seller. And so I, it's, it's in my DNA. So of course, Cameo, Earth, Wind & Fire, Gap Band, on mm. Mars Day in the Time, um, the meters, um, the Ohio players, you know, all that stuff is a huge part 
of how I create my sound and, and when I play bass or guitar, um, definitely the the um the creator of funk music, which is James Brown, Sly and the Family Stone, who diversified the funk. And last but not least, coming to what you just said, um, George Clinton made funk religious. Mm. He is the reason why the genre is what it is today. He personified what funk is. So um, I met George, what was this? I'm going to say 98, 97, because I told my mother at 12 years old, which was further back. <laughs> um, I told my mother at 12 years old that I was going to become a part of the P-Funk Army because my uncle gave me an album by Parliament called Mothership Connection. If you remember that album cover, it's a skinny George Clinton is prime on top of a UFO in space. And on the <laughs> yeah. back of that album, on the back of that album cover, he's in the ghetto with the spaceship. See how that spoke to me? Mm -hmm. I'm very eccentric. I'm weird, but as everybody knows, I'm a I'm a Brooklyn hood boy who's hood as fuck. So I have all these different elements working for me. But it made sense because that's who George Clinton was. George Clinton is from Plainfield, Plainfield, New Jersey, and Newark and Brick City. That is the Brooklyn of Jersey. That's the hood hood. All those things I just mentioned. That's where Whitney Houston is from. That's why people couldn't understand when Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown were together. Everybody thought. Bobby Brown is corrupting our princess. Um, no, <laughs> he isn't. Um, Whit Whitney, I think she AKA, already... Whitney yeah. aka Nippy, is from East Orange, the hood, Brick City. That's where Faith Evans is from. That's where um Redman no. is from. Isn't That's Naughty from there? By nature. Naughty by yeah. nature. Um, Ill Town. That's why they call. Why they call Ill Town. Ill Town is the name of their section. That like yeah. see, people don't really understand those terminologies. But if you're from the street, you get it. The same way how I'm from Crown Heights, but we call it Crime Heights because uh -huh. for obvious reasons, you know, or Brown or where Mike Tyson's from. Brownsville never ran, never will. So in any event, um, I, you know, I told my mother because I was getting real deep into Palm and Funkadelic because I said to myself that with the exception of my two main idols, who is Prince and Stevie Wonder. And of course, you know, without question, Michael Jackson and the rest of Jackson brothers as well. Mm -hmm. um, I knew that George Clinton was the one guy that would totally understand the musical chaos that was going in my mind at that time. Because like, like we said earlier, but by the time I was 12, I was already listening to Frank Zappa, Jefferson Airplane, um, The mm. Doors, The Mamas and the Papas, The Beach Boys. You know, like I was listening to a lot of, uh, I had a wide range taste of music for a kid my age. And then me being an 80s baby coming into being a 90s kid, that was a pretty strange transition. I mean, my friends couldn't understand how much I love Led Zeppelin the way I love Run DMC and the Fat Boys. So, I mean, it, it pretty much laid it. So we look at somebody like George Clinton, people call him the godfather of funk, but George was deeper than that. Remember, George Clinton produced the first Red Hot Chili Peppers album. A lot of people don't know that, unless you were no, real No, I father. did not. Yeah, um, Freaky Stylies. Freaky Stylies, that's the first album. I remember Red Hot Chili Peppers, very much like No Doubt, very much like I'm um, Fishbone and Living Color and Bad Brains. Those are all descendants of Parliament Funkadelic. Why? Because mm -hmm. Parliament Funkadelic is the first known and established heavy metal black band. Because you got to remember, at that time, you remember, and I say this respectfully, you know, even though music is for everyone, it's universal. But without question, unapologetically, we as Black people created what we know today as rock and roll. Yes. Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, the blues, that all continuation. So when the early 70s came about, after Hendrix died and 
um, and you know, Funkadelic was still relatively underground. There was this whole thing there in the middle of all this where now all these British rock groups dominated. So that's why a lot of people synonymized rock and roll with, with white bands because all these white bands who studied the black bands, they became who they became. You know, I mean, you hear it all the time, the, the, especially the Rolling Stones, my heroes, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and the Animals and Cream and all those groups from the late 60s and then Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, Vanilla Fudge. Um, I know I'm missing a few right now, but just more so all that whole era was because they were getting the attention. Meanwhile, you had a group like the Ozzy Brothers who were known for their funk R&B stuff, but mm -hmm. they're rock and roll too because Ernie Ozzy is one of the deadliest rock and roll funk guitars that ever could be. So my thing is that, thank God that those guys were selling records because if they didn't, if we didn't have those guys selling records, people would just automatically think that rock and roll is purely a white thing. And it, and it really wasn't. So George Clinton, here comes George Clinton, the first one to have what we call the Mohawk. The first one to cut the size of his head. Yeah, I mean, that's the Indian hairstyle, but he's the first one to, to have that, what would be personified by punk rock. Oh, George okay. Clinton was already diving. This is this is before the seventies. George Clinton was already half naked on stage. He was stage diving when it wasn't popular. This mm -hmm. is George Clinton. So George Clinton is definitely the man who pretty much had that together. So when you look at Lenny Kravitz and Prince and Fishbone and Red Hot Chili Peppers and all those guys, those guys studied the blueprint of Parliament Funkadelic and added their own thing to it. Like we all do. Everybody gets something from somebody. No idea is original. What we do is that we learn from who, who did something first and then we take that and then we add our layers to it. We add different things to it. I mean, that's pretty much what it is. I mean, you mm -hmm. see, what, is Don, what does Donnie always say? If it wasn't for New Edition, New Edition is the modern day boy bland blueprint. There would be, the there would be none of us if it wasn't for that. So my thing is that when you recognize what it is, it can never be anything more than that. So meeting George Clinton around the time I got out of college was probably one of the greatest moves ever. And there's a longer story to that, but I don't wanna take up that time until last. So I'll give you the shorter version. In hindsight, um, we met a couple of times because he was playing at this um, legendary place in New York City called Wetlands. But every time I tried to get with him and tell him how much the Funkadelic Islands mean to me and what he meant to me, Everybody wants to smoke with him. So it's just like, shit, I can't never, I can't get no one-on-one -on -one conversation. Hey, George, you want to smoke? You want to, and I get it. You know, that, that's, look, George is like the cool uncle that in your family that you always want to hang with. If you can smoke weed with it, nobody would get mad. I don't smoke, but I'm just saying, what's up? my brothers and them do. So the thing about this was that that would be that cool ass uncle that you can hang out with that wouldn't tell your mother that you were mm -hmm. smoking weed and sipping some wine or some, or some champagne or some liquor. George is that guy. That's why, why you think all the hip-hop people love him? Why you think George is like the big uncle and father figure to all of the hip-hop and rock and roll generation? Even, even the, the new trap guys love George Clinton because yeah. they see a lot of themselves in him because George is such a free-form a, a free thinker. So um, that time wouldn't happen. I end up going to Atlanta courtesy to an incredible friend of mine by the name of Sarah Traga. I had never been to Atlanta, so I was working on my stuff because I figured I'm like, I ain't gonna never get a conversation with George, but you know what? When the time is right, when the time is right. See, God's timing is not our timing. And that's what people gotta understand. True. And wouldn't you know, a year later, I'm in Atlanta, I'm working on music, I'm jamming, and something told me, turn around. This is some real spooky shit. Turn around. There's George Clinton standing in the damn doorway bopping his head like this. <laughs> I don't know if you did you did you ever did you ever watch Charlie Murphy's Hollywood stories on Dave Chappelle? Did you ever yes. watch the Rick James thing? 
You know yes. that part when he says that when he saw Rick James, it's like an orange aura around him. That's <laughs> that's what it was with George. It was oh. like, I can't believe it. And we sat there, we talked. His session was after mine. So he wanted me to stay because he, he saw me playing this stuff. He said, oh, you play? I said, Judge. So I ended up playing on a, on a Parliament record. I don't know which record it is because, as you know, we have over a gazillion recordings. George Clinton records frequently. He still has 400 real tapes that haven't been released yet. Oh, so unreal. yeah, it's, it's crazy. So the whole thing is, um, we did that, went back to my room. My friend Sarah called me the next morning and says, hey, Law, when was your flight supposed to leave? I was supposed to leave the next day to go back to, um, to, to, um, to New York. And he's like, well, she was like, well, you know what? Um, your flight is afternoon, but cancel that flight. And I'm like, what do you mean? I let George hear your demo when I took him back to his hotel. And he flipped. He wants you to come and stay with him right away and work on some stuff for him, for him and for, for him and his granddaughter. And the rest, they say, is history. Not only did George became the guy that paid me my first major industry check as a producer, mm. which was over six thousand dollars. And you gotta remember, at that time, for me, as in, in the late '90s and early 2000s, I was making my way through the industry because I had been signed to industry entertainment. That was the most money that I had seen for me as a producer. Mm. So get that in mind. Keep that in mind. I'm doing all these shows in New York. I'm paying my dues. I'm kicking ass. And my idol, the man who I wanted to meet, besides Prince and Stevie Wonder, who I did meet, <laughs> besides, the man who I wanted to meet actually gave me my value and my worth. Mm -hmm. So um, we're, we're still close to this day. As you see, we, you know, we, when we hang out, um, we, we do shows every now and then in between. If I'm not doing my own stuff and I happen to be in the vicinity, he can call me up on stage at any given time and I, I stay ready. And then he usually joins us with 420 Funk Mob when we do other shows outside of Parliament Funk Fidelity. So, um, oh, wow. All of George Clinton. This is what an amazing story, like how it all came together. God's Fantastic. plan. God's yeah. plan. You can speak it into existence. That's why I tell people all the time. Speak your dreams. Don't ever give up on your dreams. I'm definitely living. I mean, as you know, the George Clinton story is just one of many. So we'll get through that as we keep on talking and stuff. But um, sure. but but it's definitely the main thing I always use because the moral of that story is not only just give don't not only don't give up on your dreams, but also some things won't be placed upon the value of money. Because here's the thing I left out. They Sarah told me that he was going to pay me. I never said what. I, I didn't get up on my thing like I need such and such to do this. Like, cause you know, at that time, you know, people were just trying. This is this this is the this is the middle age part of hip hop. This is the mid '90s to to late '90s to early 2000s. So a lot of producers and hip hop was even bigger than it was when it first came out. So a lot of producers were demanding their worth. You know, you got Master P. Uh, <laughs> got Master <laughs> P. I had to put that in there. Well, Master P was taking over the game. Then Cash Money came out. All the West Coast independents like E-40 and Too Short were creating their own value and their worth. So here, here's me in a situation. My idol wants me to produce for him and his granddaughter, and he said he's going to pay me. Now, what if I would have been on some egotistical shit and been like, well, he has to pay me so much, so I don't care who he is. Nope. I heard God say to me, take the ticket to Florida and go. Mm -hmm. First of all, the fact that they were taking care of my flight, that was enough for me. They put me, and I, and I get to mm. live with them. I, li I lived with George Clinton for damn near three months in the house in Tallahassee. I, I can't see how anybody would 
expect more than that at that time. Like it's what an yeah. honor just to, yeah, like, that, exactly. that's a life honored that you want to like immerse yourself in. So, yeah. so, so, right. so the moral of that, I was going to say thank, and thank you for saying that because the moral of that is that some things won't be monetary, but here's the, here's the flip side to that. But some things will lead you to the money. <laughs> I remember yeah. commerce. It's still, it's still very much a thing. So the thing about this mm-hmm. is that what I've learned to this very day, I, I kid you not. Now, of course, with certain things, um, yes, the check must be cleared before I step on stage, before I do anything else. But there are a lot of other things where I'll sit down and assess a situation. And if that person is talking right and it makes sense and we can negotiate, some things can happen. You know, not to say I won't do anything for free or anything like that, but I've learned that some opportunities are golden. But then, but see, I've been in this business long enough to know which opportunities are that. You got a way out of every situation. You got to always know. So the, the main thing about me, you know, I'm, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. I trust in God. I, I trust in my faith will lead me. And can I be honest with you? Every single time that I've trusted him is the reason why you see the career that I have you know, and the people who I've worked with or who you see me with and things like that. Those were all God divine decisions. Hey, Lord, get on that plane, get on that plane and go to L.A. Get on that plane. You, you never know. You just might end up working with Ray Parker Jr. And the second day I got there, I'm in Ray Parker Jr.'s multimillion dollar home working on music with my heroes. Mm. Who, who would have ever thought? But that's that's such a leap of faith. If I would have just stayed home and been all depressed and mad and secretly being told, I never, I don't really talk too much about my private life, but I will say this publicly because I trust you so much. I was going through a separation divorce at that time. So imagine my mental at that moment. I could have stayed home and just soaked in my chair like how I'm doing now talking to you. I could have soaked and did that, but something in my spirit said, Law, Book a flight to L.A. It's your second hometown. You haven't been there in a minute. There's some relationships that you need to reestablish. And boy, was God ever so right. Whew. That's all I can say about that. So I, I wanted to just pinpoint the, the moral of, of that George Clinton story. I tell a lot of artists now um, about, you know, some things won't always be for money. Even the older artists, old, a lot of older artists, they have that mentality and they're setting their way. And, I, and I'm, I, I ain't mad at them. Some people just ain't with it. But I've been known to carefully, strategically pick the right opportunities that would make sense for my brand that mm-hmm. won't involve money. But then it'll be that one thing that will lead me to an opportunity to make some money. God will put you where you need to be. Amen. 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 That's true. 100%. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> then I was so happy to hear about the fact that you had seven grammy nominations for your work yeah (laughs) now what i mean i could ask you how that feels and i know the answer already like it's going to be incredible right but (laughs) what does that yeah what does that do for you as an artist uh, as a producer going forward once you have those nominations what how does things grow from there well, I mean, thank God I made it on the list because I was at the bottom of the main nominees. For those who don't know how the Grammys work, because, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's been televised for so many years. So a lot of the, the average fans don't know how the system works because there are a lot of nominees in each category. But you're going to only see the top five or six. And they're mostly by the design of major, major record labels. Now, that, now of course, over the last 20 years, there have been more indie people popping up on there 
establishing those destinies. But um, it feels good to be nominated and considered for, for anything, for one. But here's the thing I want to point out to people, and I'm going to make this very clear. Grammys do not validate artistry. So do understand, some of our greatest eclectic, incredible, kick-ass, mega-dope artists and musicians have not won a Grammy. That's George true. Clinton has a lifetime achievement Grammy, but he didn't win a Grammy for any of the groundbreaking stuff that he did, like Maggot Brain and One Nation Under a Groove. Mm. And, and then you got, um, who else? And then you got people like um, Jimi Hendrix never won a Grammy. You know, you would think all the levels of that. That's why I screened with my incredible mm. big sis, the great Layla Hathaway, who is the daughter of the legendary Donnie Hathaway, when she got four to five consecutive Grammys in a row each year, and what was the last one she got that was the biggest ice on the cake? She won one redoing her father's song, Little Ghetto Boy, because Donnie Hathaway, as we all know, next to Stevie Wonder, musical genius, who should have had his Grammys back in the 70s, and he was never really given that due, even though everybody in the industry knew how mega dope and how badass Donnie Hathaway was, he mm. didn't get that kind of recognition. So I felt like seeing Layla win was her getting all the Grammys that her father didn't get. So in those in situations yeah. like that, those when the, that's when the Grammys do have a point of merit. But make no mistake about it, because mm-hmm. um, God forbid if I never win a Grammy, I'm still validated by the industry. My resume speaks for itself. So at the end of the day. I'm not sitting here worrying about validation. I mean, even on Instagram, everybody talk about, well, when you gonna get your blue check? I said, motherfucker, I get green checks. How about that? <laughs> green checks, fuck a blue check. Blue check don't mean nothing. Blue yeah. check means nothing if you're not getting green checks and I get green checks. So the one thing is that they decide, they decide to validate me and that's cool. But other than that, I'm not worried about a blue check. Let me get a green check. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, awards awards are nice, but they're not a validation in any way. No. Well, yeah. you can't you can't you can't allow it to be because in this mm-hmm. industry, see, here's what people don't understand about me. And over the years, there was a lot of confusion with fans. You know, certain people, you know, and this is how severely too much in tune we are to social media because one would see my posts, which I really kind of use it as inspiration to inspire other artists that you don't need a major record label to make things happen or to make a wave in this industry. But some people saw it as me being arrogant or conceited, oh, he's full of himself. I said, no, that's what you think because you're very insecure. And you apparently haven't learned that in this industry, when you're your own marketing team, you have to build yourself up. When I first came into this game mm-hmm. as a young kid, so my first professional gig was seven. I was your typical young Brooklyn kid. I'm smiling, I'm happy, I'm dancing, I'm having fun. I'm, I'm getting around all these record label people at 12 years old. I'm being humble and nice. And unfortunately, it got me no fucking place. When I realized that it wasn't getting me no place, I had to become so confident in who I was and what I brought to the table. And my biggest inspiration for that, well, actually two of them, was James Brown, and Muhammad Ali, because these are two men, two incredible iconic men that named their own monikers. Mm -hmm. We call Muhammad Ali the greatest, but you gotta remember, Muhammad Ali was the one that called himself the greatest. Mm. And they call him everything from the Louisville lip. That boy don't never shut up. He has a big mouth. I hope Sonny Liston punch him in his mouth. He talked too damn much. 
He talks a lot. He, he knew. He's like, people say I talk too much, but if y'all want to lose your money, be a fool and bet on Sonny. And of course, as we all know, <laughs> um, you know, he had rhymes for days. You know, he's like, I'm telling you, if Muhammad Ali didn't make it as a as a boxer, he damn sure would have been a a, 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 a rapper in, in, in the later <laughs> years if he would have came out during the 80s and the 90s. You know, folk like a butterfly, sing like a bee, your eyes can't mm-hmm. hear what your eyes can't see. Because he knew how great he was. No matter how much shit he was talking, he backed it up for the most part, even though, you know, he lost a few matches. But but the, the early part, that early, them early years, like him and Mike Tyson, them early years of their careers, they was talking that shit and backing it up. James Brown, the golf, he had like, he had like how many names? The Godfather of Soul, the hardest mm-hmm. working man in show business, Mr. Dynamite, Mr. Please, 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 the Minister of Super New Heavy Funk. He named all these things because he wanted to keep the legacy of the moniker going. So when me and my DJ sat in the room one day, we was like, yo, we, we, need, we need to take it back to the old school where, where, the, where, the, where the legendary guys would use their own monikers and create their own. So I need one for me. And we went through a whole bunch and that's when my DJ came up with my moniker, which is the most talented kid in the music biz. So you needed confidence to push that because I, I was scared of it. If I'm like, I said, no, that's, I'm like, I'm not sure about that. He said, but Lord, look, man, nobody does what you do. You got people that try to do what you do, but they, it, ain't, it ain't you. You're a real MC, real singer, you're all that. So I'm like, you know what? Let's start pushing that narrative. So of course, it was met with resistance in the beginning with some people, but we kept going. So now you look at my pages, you see how people refer to me, see how the fans call me out. They call me by my moniker if they don't call me by my name, but that comes with confidence. You have to know who you are. So when I put up these posts, it's to inspire and to help someone else that may want to start a business, not even just music, just fashion industry, whatever they choose to want to do in life. I want to inspire them and show them that you're not going to get to where you need to get to being just weak and humble. I save my humility for offstage. When I'm offstage, I'm chilling with the fans. You probably seen me. I, I hang out with the fans. I take pictures. Um, we crack jokes to the end of the night. You know, I make sure that if the if some of the female fans got too drunk, I put them in the cabin, make sure they get back to their hotel because mama mm-hmm. raised me right. So for me, mm-hmm. it's like people don't see that side. So it's not to brag or the books. It's really just to kind of let people know that that's me on stage. When I'm on stage, yes, I am that motherfucker without question. I am. <laughs> but when I'm off stage, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a people person. I'm the same, I'm the same Brooklyn hood boy that loves his Chinese food and pizza that will stay in a hotel room and play video games if the after party is whack. I, I'm, that's mm-hmm. me. Like I've, I've, I've been like that since I was 13. And now here in, in the stage of where I'm at now, I'm still that way. So I, I try to inspire people with these posts and let them know about confidence and how to get to where they get to. If I, if I would have just stayed meek and nice and humble and, okay, I, I really don't want it. I ain't gonna get nowhere. Yeah, you aren't gonna get it. That's, you ain't gonna get anywhere. I've seen, I've seen that happen to... Even just from my experiences being in a in a rock band throughout my twenties and thirties, it was like if I kept putting everybody ahead of myself, mm-hmm. I wasn't going to get anywhere. And I learned that the hard way. Yeah, I mean, you, and those are lessons learned because the one thing about this industry, it will teach you. You know, and that's the one thing. See, the thing about me, and again, not to brag, because of who I am, and of course, I'm a bona fide Scorpio. And if you know anything about Scorpio energy we pick up on things very quickly before most people do. And I learned this early. That's why I knew at 12 and 13 years old, as I was creating this Planet 12 thing, the whole key was diversification because I knew that if I just called myself an R&B artist, all I'm gonna get is R&B. If I called myself just a hip hop artist, I'm, I'm gonna be stifled and pigeonholed. 
And a lot of my friends didn't understand that. And record labels were trying to say, well, you need to be one thing. You need to, we, we can't market you because you do all these different things and we can't market you, which was bullshit because once Outkast and the Roots and Alicia Keys came out, and then of course, later on, Bruno Mars, that proved my point even more. I'm like, I, I love the comparisons. I love, I said, well, me and Bruno's cut from the same cloth. Y'all surprised, I'm not. I mm. said, because I knew it would take someone like him. We're from the same caliber. I did two shows with Bruno Mars. We were on the same bill with each other. And I made sure I let him know. This is, this is when he was starting to get really big. I let him know. I said, dude, you are a definite reason why I can continue. Because I got years on Bruno. But the thing is, it's that we cut from the same cloth. You know, he could have easily went with a, with, a, with a corny ass pop album. But he said, you know what? Let's do some blue magic stylistics type stuff. With leave the door open. Leave the door open is nothing but a 70s song in this present time. That's all it is to me. See what I'm saying? Skate, mm -hmm. all those, that's that whole Silk Sonic project is straight up 70s funk with a new twist on every level. These guys understand the, the purpose of songwriting. So mm -hmm. I, I say again, when I was creating Planet 12, this is the type, that's the type of musical world that I wanted to see. I wanted to see um when when a white girl like Tina Marie who's classically trained, but she sings R&B soul like no other, you know, thank God she had a career because she could have got pigeonholed too. And then, you know, mm -hmm. I couldn't stand when other people were telling people, well, you're, you're a white girl from Nashville. You should, you should be singing country music. They told Bruno that shit too. You know that, right? They told Bruno because, you know, Bruno's, Bruno's Puerto Rican. And at that time, this is when the Ricky Martin and the, the John Cicada, that whole Latin explosion thing was happening. And they were telling Bruno, this is Motown, they were telling Bruno, yeah, well, why don't you do like the Latin pop thing? And Bruno was laughing. He's like, don't get me wrong. I love those artists, but that's not really the vibe that I'm on. And if I was to be on that vibe, I would do it a little bit differently than what those people are doing. Mm -hmm. But they didn't get it. And they dropped Bruno Mars from the label. I know they probably kicking themselves in the ass right mm -hmm. now. <laughs> they drop Bruno how you drop Bruno Bruno Mars from the record label but people don't know that's why I've always continued my journey because my journey just like your journey your journey's your journey you learn but I'm thankful to God that I didn't have to learn too much stuff the hard way like I, I, I caught wind very early and one of my greatest weapons was the fact that I knew music business keyword mm -hmm. music business two words put together but totally separate because yeah. it's 90% business and 10% is the music. And at 14 and 15 years old, um, when you know everything about publishing and royalty exchange and, 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 and making sure you're cutting the cost by doing most things on your own and letting them do distribution, the labels ain't going to want to sign you. This is we going back to the nineties. Now this is, this is me in the mid nineties. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to sign me because I did everything in the studio. I produce all the music. I do. I write all the songs, you know, very much like D'Angelo Prince, a lot of other people who are fit in that category. And that means I get most of the majority of the share. They didn't want that because they really have to deal with their quota most of the time. Yeah. They want to keep you. They want they want to keep you. They want to keep you bankrupt, but they want to keep you under their thumb. So when I realized the industry wasn't grabbing at me too much, with the exception of a few people that, diff that definitely looked out for me and, and helped me along the way. The majority of the industry was not trying to hear someone like LAW. They wasn't trying to hear me. So I had to make myself a valuable commodity to prove my point. And thank God for the wedding gig industry because um, Element Music and Starlight Orchestras, they saved my career. And what they did was they allowed me to transform their industry because I didn't realize when I got in, um, Mary Ann Bennett, who's my agent, my longtime friend and sister, CEO of the company that I work for called Element Music, they told me, 
um, we've been looking for a God like you forever. I'm like, what? Y'all mean you tell me I have nobody here that can sing, rap, dance, and jump on instruments occasionally? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm being real. I'm, I'm asking. I'm like, for real? See, that, that shows you my humility, because even though I am who I am, I knew I wasn't the only one that did all that stuff. Because first of all, look at Princess TV One. Those are my two main heroes. So I knew there yeah. had to be others like me or like Bruno that did the same stuff we did. But at that time in the wedding gig industry in New York City, there wasn't that. So I became the first of my kind. So look how God works. And 20-something years later, I still do corporate events. I have shows booked all the way in 2025. And that has nothing to do with the Planet 12 stuff. So mm. to, to, to anchor your point again, um, say it again. Sometimes you can learn the hard way, but as long as you learn. That's the main thing I want to say. Like sometimes yeah. knowledge is priceless and you got to stay forever learning and stay forever teachable. People call me a master and I'm like, okay, I'll take that pound in the back only because of the work that I put in. But make no mistake, I'm forever a student. I learn something new every day about the business that I'm in and even just the aspects of my talent. So thank you for saying that. I like that phrase, stay teachable. Yeah, you stay have teachable. To. I don't like when people think that they know it all. No, and that, and it's crazy <laughs> because that's that, that's that's what I love this conversation because that was how everybody treated me. They treated me like, oh, he's a Mister No. That's Stevie Wonder's song. He's Mister Know It All, and it wasn't that. It was because I was so knowledgeable about my own history that we were experiencing in the 80s and the 90s, but because of who my family is, I knew about the 60s, the 50s, 70s, 70s and the early 80s. So a lot of the older musicians were intimidated by me. They didn't like me. A lot of them didn't like me. It was like, oh, this kid thinks he knows everything. And it wasn't about me knowing everything. It was because I was always studying. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is the reason why I have the career that I have. Because again, like I said earlier, if I would have limited myself to just to just R&B and gospel and my funk roots and my hip hop roots. If I didn't expand and get into jazz or get into classical music like Bach and Brahm and Beethoven or get into new age like Yanni, I got into all that stuff mm -hmm. because I wanted to dig deeper as a producer. And in my personal opinion, you know, there are a lot of great producers in all genres of music, but to me, a great producer is someone who is a fan of the artist, number one, but number two, has the exploration of how to use instrumentation around them. That's why Quincy Jones is the greatest producer in pop mm -hmm. music history. Not because he produced Michael Jackson. Go back to Quincy's history when it came to Ray Charles and jazz combos and Latin mm -hmm. stuff. Go back mm -hmm. to the early stuff before he got into funk and pop R&B of the 80s. He was already Quincy doing so much before Michael Jackson came along. Yeah, people don't, people don't realize that sometimes. Like Quincy is the quintessential producer that every producer should want to strive to be like because he can tell the guy um no I, I want the french horn on this one no play the oboes a little bit more lower than this every producer can't do that and i want to be the guy to be able to say to dictate that's why the musicians when i do shows with other musicians when i'm just doing when i'm just being the front guy and not jumping on instruments the musicians love me because i can talk to them in their language i play the instruments so i know so i can turn them out to a bass player and say um on this song for the feel i want less Larry Graham and more James Jameson. Now, if you're a real bass player, you already know what that means. You know what you're talking about? Then you can give me some Jetty Lee. I'm a Rush fan, I'm a huge Rush fan. So it's like, mm -hmm. then, then you can give me some of that, that prototype sort of bass playing or David Gilmore from Pink Floyd. Like you can, we can get deeper into those realms if you know music the way I know. But that's not me being a snob. That's just me being 
um, knowledgeable of who I am. But even to this day, with all that I know, and that's a lot of years of knowledge, because I do know a lot, but I learn something new every day. I still watch documentaries. I still watch interviews for clues. I know the Bee Gees whole history, but there were some things I didn't know until I watched the documentary. Mm-hmm. So this is what I'm saying. Like, I, again, remain teachable. I'm the first person to say, you know, I didn't know that. Wow, that's deep. Like, I, and I really mean, I'm like, if I didn't know something, I'll be the first to admit, I did not know that. Mm-hmm. I don't have that insecure issue in me. So for me, it, it, I don't have that pride or that ego to make it feel like, oh, damn, why do you think you know? Because a lot of people had that issue. Yeah. That's why, not, now you understand why the record labels couldn't stand me in meetings because I would go to meetings, they'd be like, well, Lord, you got to do this sort of thing. And I said, Alicia Keys didn't do that. Well, Lucia Keys, well, Outkast didn't do that either. And they have three number one records in a row. They would get mad because every time they tried to bring up something, I had a counter. They didn't like that. You can still be a confident human being without being closed off to and, and being vulnerable and being able to Amen. say, hey, I got that wrong. You know, you're get, we're all going to get something wrong once in a while. It's okay well, to admit it. First of all, that's, that's part of being a real adult. And me as a real man, I am the first person when I am wrong and I didn't recognize it, I will apologize and say that I'm sorry because that's what real men do. Thank goodness. You know? That's what real men do. I don't see for me, I'm all masculine man, but I'm pro woman. So for me, in, in the realm of relationships and things of that nature, because no one in any industry has it harder than women, especially black women. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you what it is. But women overall, and no greater example has been shown than what we're dealing with now. And I'm not going to go into that, but we already know yeah. that clearly shows you in the words of the great Michael Jackson, they really don't care about us. It's, uh, I, I can't even yeah, explain I, I, my feelings and thoughts. I've been on a tirade. I've been I've been blocking people. I've been unfriending. I don't give a shit. Yeah. Like when, when it gets because keep in mind, I'm a as as most of my fans know, and as you probably may well know, I am a father of four children. Three of them are girls. So mm-hmm. my girls, I mean, I love my son to death too, but you know, of course, you know what they say, father, father's daughter, you know, that's daddy's yeah. little girl, that sort of thing. Not to mention I have a granddaughter who's turned three. So Nice. Um, for me, it's it's going to always be a win-win on this situation. And that's the way that my mother raised me. That's not saying that women can't be wrong and out of their minds sometimes, too, because we all are. We all are. Yeah, we, we all are have, all human. We we, all we're, we're all, <laughs> thank, say it again. We're all human. That's right. So, yeah. But, but the sensitivity part of who I am, I make sure that it's understood. That's why I have an amazing relationship with my daughters because no matter how many, and we rarely had disagreements, but I've always took time to really understand them going into womanhood. Because remember, I'm a man, I'm, I'm the father, but they're mothers who are incredible mothers. You know, they're mothers and that sort of thing. And then my aunts and my own mother, who I'm very close to, as most people know, that reminds me every single time mm-hmm. on why I am who I am as a man standing up for women. So when decisions like this is made by our supreme government, if you want to call it that, because there's nothing supreme about our court system at this point, and never has been, if you want to be honest. Mm. Um, you know, it's not showing any of that. So I fear for the future. And I, I hope, you, you want to hope and pray that things can change and overturn. But as we all know, because of the way the system was built and the infrastructure, um, it's a process, a very long one, and I'm not holding my breath. 
this is this is the way it's been since America's Inception, which, by the way, is my new single coming out in a week or so. Oh, we're gonna get to that. Absolutely, we have to talk. Oh yeah, we're gonna get to that. I know we got a lot to talk about. We're we gonna get to that. But go ahead. I'm, <laughs> I'm excited about that. But when you're talking about things that are challenging right now in the U.S., I mean, I'm up here in Canada and seeing Canada! everything from every. I, you know, we kind of just we're seeing everything from our viewpoint, and. It's easy for a, a Canadian maybe to just sit up here and judge what's going on down there if they're not living it. But mm-hmm. we have our own challenges here that we need to address. Oh, I know. So, Mo- yeah. Most of my biggest fans are Canadian, not to mention a lot of my close friends. So I'm updated a lot on have you- various levels of what y'all guys go through. That's why every time when one of my friends can a call, I'll pray with them. I'll just be like, mm-hmm. you know what? I'll just try to keep you... Um, you know, try to keep you sane in this crazy world, especially what we had to deal with the last couple of years with with the pandemic and everything. So, yeah, um, yeah. it's it's important. So I, I know I know the stuff that Canada goes through. <laughs> Have you been here? Yeah, I've been there. Actually, you are laugh. It's funny you mentioned George Clinton because mm-hmm. my last, my first, and my last show in Canada was with George. Oh, that wow. was back in that was back in damn wow. That was what, 2000? Yeah, 2000, 2001. Oh, it's been so long. It's been too long, but go, but thank God for MySpace going back. <laughs> thank God for MySpace Same. because that's because before Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and all that shit became what it became, when I started noticing that most of my fans were coming from Canada, it was just very interesting to me that I hadn't been out there in a long time. So with time, that audience grew. So imagine when I go, if I plan to go and do, which I am working on right now, imagine when I go plan to do a show in any part of Canada, and that's going to be a whole lot of people showing up that mm-hmm. have been waiting to come in and see me live, you know, in, in, in their vicinity. So, um, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I'm out West. So if you're coming out West, we'll, we'll get, we'll get, uh, hooked up and meet each other. That'd be nice. Are you, man, you kidding me? Hell yeah. That's sure. a given after, after this great conversation, you better believe it. <laughs> Absolutely. Now you have a, a relationship over the years too, um, with new edition with NKOTB. Yes. And I, I know you've, have you gone to the mixtape tour shows yet? Oh yeah. I've been to three of them and my fourth yeah. one will be next week. Donnie made sure of that. <laughs> Good. Good. That's I was so big, blessed. That's what big brothers are for. <laughs> After these messages, we'll be right back. Dope Nostalgia listeners, I love you and I thank you so much for being a part of this show and its success over the last two years. We have what's called Patreon for those who want to support the show financially. For as little as $1 a month, you can become a subscriber and get bonus content, early podcast release, all kinds of cool behind-the-scenes stuff, and more. There's different tiers of membership starting at only $1 a month. And we even have some special merch for you guys who are in it for the long run. So please, join our Patreon. It's at www.patreon.com forward slash dope nostalgia. Hey, Woodshed, it's AK. Hey, what's up? Nothing. What are you doing? Just sitting here listening to the Dope Nostalgia podcast. What are you doing? Oh my goodness, I am also listening to the Dope Nostalgia Podcast. Did we just become best friends? 
Hey everybody, what's up? It's DJ Woodshed and DJ AK from No More Games Radio. Keep listening to our friend Naomi on Dope Nostalgia Podcast and check us out at nomoregamesradio.com. I mean, as you saw, because you were seeing our Instagram live from San Francisco when we were lost. Y'all, we y'all, y'all was cruising. Y'all, as we say in Brooklyn, y'all was cruising for bruising. Pretty much. We were completely lost and having the time of our lives. But that was a good time because like, we got to see, I got, myself, I got to see three of the mixtape tour shows. I had three okay. VIP experiences where I got to finally meet Donnie and, the, and everybody and it was unreal. Donnie Wahlberg is an enigma of a human being. He's just so loving and, and real, you know, I get so what's your, how'd you guys get that relationship? And you're, you might be possibly collaborating on something. Not possibly. It's happening. Okay. <laughs> that's just, what I want to hear. I'm just, I'm just not giving a whole lot of details, but the fans, know. that's fair. It's, it's happening. No, no, but they, but the fans know it's happening because we made it public. And the thing is that it, it have been building for so long. But um, before I even get to my relationship with with Donnie and and Danny and, and even with and even with New Edition, mm-hmm. let me let me let me just say this because the same way I talk about Prince and Stevie Wonder, um, and Michael and Lionel Richie, who's another close friend of mine as well. Um, you got to understand something. Though Prince, Stevie Wonder, Jimi Hendrix, James Brown, um, Force MDs, and um, a few other notables were my heroes, they were all adults. I'm mm-hmm. still a kid. I won my first talent shows imitating Michael and Prince. So even though that worked well in my favor for me, you know, continuing out through New York City doing talent shows and battling on the streets and stuff like that. And when I wasn't battling, I was singing in church. Mm-hmm. Um, New Edition 
became the direct influence that I needed to see. You know why? Because they look like me. Even though they're a few years, they're some years older than me, but you gotta remember, they, we dress the same way and we all project boys. We from, the, we from the street, we from the hood. If you look at that Candy Girl video, that's the way we dressed in 83, 84. You know, I was, I was a young shorty then. I was about seven when they were like 15 and 13, mm -hmm. 14 years old. But that's the thing, seeing kids that look like me Mm -hmm. that was singing and doing all this stuff and popping and locking the way we were as kids, it mm -hmm. spoke directly to me. Because you got to remember, even though those primary influences that are adults, it's not believable or tangible for a kid between the ages of six and 10 until they see somebody else doing it. You dig what I'm saying? So at that mm -hmm. particular time, we were dealing with the emergence of the boy band factor, the, the modern day boy band factor. Let me, let me correct that. Mm -hmm. So of course, naturally, there's New Edition. There's Menudo, because I love Menudo too. Robbie Rose mm -hmm. is one of my good friends as well. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and then of course, right after that, um, you know, New Kids on the Block, and then in the centerpiece as the 90s came along, Boyz II Men, Jodeci, even though they're not necessarily boy bands, but because of the influence of New Edition, all the other r groups that came before them, um, we can classify them as um as boy bands, even though Jodeci and Boyz II Men are not necessarily boy bands. But even if it's a vocal harmony how? group, it's the yes. idea of yes. Yeah, absolutely. Troop, High Five, Shy, Backstreet Boys, In Sync, mm -hmm. um, Old Town, you name it. You know, and some were better than others. I'll just I'll leave it at that. But yeah. but more so just in the the reference of that. So imagine your mother winning first place at the Apollo Theater. And it just so happens that you get to stay for the entire show because your mom won first place. And there's these five white kids that come out. I was there. I was there. to The, the first the time they played the, at the Apollo? I was there. Yeah. <gasps> That's an incredible I'm, I'm thing. I'm only about nine or eight. And mm -hmm. of course, as you've seen very much, that, that infamous clip. When they came out, they were on out. They were they were on album number two at that time. So this is um hanging tough was not the phenomenon it would become yet. They were still mm -hmm. being marketed as you know they were still being marketed to the black audience because that was the majority of their audience. People mm -hmm. don't realize that. Vanilla Ice, same thing. Vanilla Ice played for nothing but black files for three years before he even got signed. Mm -hmm. He never dreamed of playing for a pop white audience because Vanilla Ice was not a pop rapper. New Kids on the Block is not a pop group. They became a pop group by default because mm -hmm. of the situation. But they are a white R&B hip hop group. So they mm -hmm. come out, y'all know, white boys, white boys. That was what you heard. And, mm -hmm. you know, I was blown away because I'm like, yo, okay, these white kids are dope. That little damn little Joey Mac. That's why I look at that. That's why I listen. That's why when I look at Griffin, I've been hanging out with Griffin the last couple of shows. We've been hanging out backstage with each other. I got a chance to finally keep it with Griffin. That little kid is his father all over again, man. That I told him that in front of Joey. So I'm like, I look, he's like, yeah, right. I said, man, I point, I kept pointing, like, I, I, I was starting to get emotional. I'm like, that's you all over again, man. That's, as, as, as a father myself, I can relate to that. I start looking at my daughters and stuff when they do certain things. I'm like, yep, that's me. So the thing is, um, you know, I after that show, I begged my mother to go to the Wiz. Remember the Wiz, Sam Goody? Yes. Remember blockbusters? Come on. I mean, we used to go to these places where you would get the, the actual music and it's tangible. And I begged my mother to buy the Hanging Tough cassette. And just the same way how New Edition influenced me, new kids had their own influence on me. So who would have thought 
some odd 25, 30 something years later that my dream of not only meeting, not only hanging, but now working with my idols, mm-hmm. you know, me and my brother, my, my older brother, Casino Chip, shout out to Chip. Um, mm-hmm. We were living in Arizona at that point with my grandfather, going to a school called Choya High in Tucson, which was predominantly white and Mexican. And there were, there were some blacks there too as well. So imagine 1990 and me and my brother, and mind you, my brother's, my bro- I'm dark brown, my brother's even darker than me. Imagine us walking through the hall, singing the steps in step by step. <laughs> I love that. My older brother is Danny. That's why me and Danny have this relationship because that hardcore street aspect, that's who Danny is, mm-hmm. in case you didn't know. Reminds me a lot of my older brother. Same thing with me too, but of course he's the revered big brother. He was a break dancer. Of course, you know, I know. Come on now. Yeah. <laughs> Look, that, on a, that's a whole nother history, deeper level. But just, you know, Danny, Jordan, and Donnie, certified break dancers without question. So their influence, just like New Edition was on me, hands down, bar none. So who would have ever thought that I would end up meeting Donnie, which, by the way, happened to um, Jimmy Marsh, because um, I was already into Jimmy as an MC. Mm-hmm. So never once did I think, because I, I knew I would meet him one, I knew I would meet. Then one day, because Donnie and Jordan are my top two favorite New Kids members, obviously, because Jordan, Jordan for just, you know, the influence on my four several scenes. I'm known for my four several too. And who better than him, especially dancing while singing, because him and Ralph Tresvan from New Edition, they are, they are the exemplification of how to dance and sing at the same time and maintain your vocal control. Ain't mm-hmm. the guys that can do it the way they do it. And, um, you know, meeting Donnie, was crazy because the first time we met, it was just like, hey, hey. You know, it's, it's like, it felt like he knew me, right? even though he didn't know anything about me. Actually, what Jimmy was telling him about me. So the thing is just that, he said, yo, law is dope. You know, I had that dude there. And you know, and I'm just like, you know, so of course me shooting my shot as a producer and a writer and as an artist, but you know, that was on the, the, the back burner for later on. But I finally waited 25 something years to finally express what him and his Dorchester crew meant to me. Mm-hmm. The days that I would sit up trying to study that move that Jordan did in the solo part of Step by Step. <laughs> me he's still doing it. He's still doing it. I love it. I, that's my favorite part of the whole show besides them doing the original choreography for the right stuff. Um, oh, so for yeah. me, it's nostalgic. I still have the VHS of Hanging Tough Live. I still have it. Mm-hmm. I still have it. Yeah. I had the music sheet books. I started learning piano. I wanted to learn my basic chord structure. So I already knew what it was, but I couldn't name it. So my mother bought me a new kids on the, I still have it. It's probably worth a gazillion dollars at this point. They don't even make them anymore. Yeah. But um, yeah. I showed Donnie, he was like, wow, I don't even have that. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So of course, as most people have seen, that relationship just grew and grew, you know, mm-hmm. see each other. And every now and then I'll be on Twitter and I would start dropping the facts and dropping a lot of stuff that most blockheads don't know. Because again, I'm different from the average blockhead because I'm an artist. Mm-hmm. I'm a musician. I know the history that most fans don't really know. Mm-hmm. And because I'm connected to some of the people who they grew up with. Donna Summer's family is close friends of mine. Mm-hmm. And as you know, they grew up around the corner from Donna Summer. Mm. They know all their nieces and nephews. I they actually didn't know, know that. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you know now. There's there's a lot of deeper stories. I, I'm not going to tell them here, but 
um, Danny, you know, when me and Danny started talking, he couldn't believe I knew the people that he knew in St. Vincent in Boston. He was like, oh, wow, how she's doing? I'm like, you know, I said, yeah, I said, we've been best, best friends for 15 years. He's like, wow. So it made Danny smile. He's like, oh, man, those were the days. It made Danny go back. See what I mean? So yeah. our ties, <coughs> excuse me, our ties are considerably close. Same thing with New Edition, because most of the guys that work on their projects are mentors of mine. Dinky Bingham, who produced um, Hit Me Off, which is the number one record for New Edition, Dinky Bingham is what I would call one of my musical uncles because he was in a he was in a band called the Jamaica Boys, which is a supergroup featuring the great Marcus Miller, who is um, one of the greatest jazz fusion funk bass players that played with Miles Davis and all that all that great Luther Vandross stuff that you like. That's Marcus Miller. That's all the production. Ah. Never too much. Never too much, and all the Never all the early much. stuff. Yeah, that's Marcus Miller on bass. Yeah. You see what I mean? That Marcus Miller, um, Mark Stevens, who is the younger brother of my number one favorite female singer, Shaka Khan. That's mm -hmm. whose family to meet you now. And Shaka's daughter, Indira, is one of my very best friends. Mm -hmm. See what I mean? See how the connection happens? Mm -hmm. But that's all connected through Dinky Bingham, who just happened to have a number one record on New Edition. Not mm -hmm. to mention Ray Parker Jr. wrote Mr. Telephone Man. Oh, that I didn't know either. Wow. Yeah, matter of fact, New Edition wasn't even the first ones to record. It was a it was a guy called, I think his name was, I'm trying to remember his name, something with the last name Parker. I don't know, I first heard this years mm. ago, and he was a reggae artist. He recorded it first, and it didn't really go anywhere, but the song went to who, 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 who it was supposed to go to. New Edition, I don't think that song would have been perfect for anybody but New Edition. So the thing is that um, these are stories that people need to know about regarding the relationship between new kids and and new addition, because first of all, there's Roxbury and Dorchester right around the corner from each other. Um, the fact that some of the members went to the same school and hung in the same areas and stuff like that. It's a lot of history connecting links. So of course, a lot of black fans didn't notice. So of course, you know, a lot of black fans are like, who these wanna be white new edition motherfuckers? <laughs> and, and it was not, that was a true, look, that was a true. And I, you gotta remember, there was no social media back then. So nobody really knew what was what until years later. So I'm glad to see that a lot of that has changed because they finally learned the story. They finally know what kind of a man Donnie is who always makes sure that people get their credit. And I can proudly say that as his little brother from Brooklyn, you know, on every level. I mean, he treats me like a, like a big brother should. I, I think, you know, I have brothers, obviously I have a large family, so I know what that feels like. So it's not like a, I've been longing for a long lost bigger brother, but you can never have more than one. At least I know if something happens to me, you know, Donnie and especially Danny, they'll make some heads roll. So my thing is just that same thing with Bobby Brown and Ralph and Viv and all those guys. Like those mm -hmm. are my big brothers for real. You've seen, you've seen all the photos of us hanging out and, and mm -hmm. cracking jokes and, and them sharing my videos and stuff and and you know and I didn't, I didn't actually do any of that like the thing is that they do it because they do it from the heart no one could tell me that my big brothers don't love me so that relationship with me and Donnie just continued to grow and grow and then you know we spoke about it we would have these little chats and stuff and then you know we he agreed said you know yeah we definitely want to do that but you know Donnie's time is Donnie's time so that mm -hmm. day when he brought me into this is during the pandemic this is the first year he was going live a little bit more than usual, and he brought me into his live. I didn't even ask to be in the live. He just hit me up and just pressed and said, Donnie wants to sit. I'm like, oh, shoot, you want to talk to the people in front of the people? Okay. And that's <laughs> when he announced 
after he gave me my flowers, like I always give him his, you know, it almost made me damn near tear up just to hear my idol give me my flowers. Like, that's crazy. And then he said, so, Law, you ready? When we go in the studio, what we going to do? I looked at him like, I've been waiting on you, bro. I'm ready when you are. So now here we are, 2002, everybody, 2022. Everybody's been seeing, you know, they, they love when we get together. They love when we hanging out. They love when we joking around and at the show. Like that infamous clip now that, that probably would have went viral of me, um, my boy Flav, who some of y'all know. I'm Flav, Eric B from Eric B and Rakim, mm -hmm. um, my boy Tuffy from Video, Video Music Box. And we're all on the side in Jersey at a new edition concert doing the steps adding harmony parts. Like we're literally little kids. And to see Donnie, who's an icon himself, become that 14 year old kid all over again, because you gotta remember, that's how New Kids got started. Donnie said that, I saw that template, I bought the Candy Girl album, and then how coincidentally that the guy who I would end up meeting is the producer of the record. So yep. it led to a lot of different things. Um, shout out to the, to the to Maurice Star, by the way, the genius mm -hmm. known as Maurice Star. But yeah, so in a nutshell, that's pretty much how me and Donnie's relationship has um, grown and it continues to get grow, grown and get stronger by the day, man. That's that's my family on all pretense. Um, blood couldn't make us any closer. You know, sometimes I could be having the craziest day and he'll pop up out of nowhere. Yo, <laughs> straight for tomorrow? You cool? Okay, I'm, I'm going to see you. No, no, no. Make sure you come. Like that's, that's what, again, that's what yeah. big brother do they make sure and mind you his schedule is crazy like mine if not crazy oh, yeah so the fact that he makes time to hit me up or to know what i think about certain things i know he told one fan it was so funny because he's like yeah because you know law is very bold in his statements y'all know that i i, I say a lot of shit and he, <laughs> and, 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 and yeah, i know i mean everybody knows that it's no secret. that's so funny but donnie was like that's law that's the brooklyn truth and donnie said that shit they couldn't really argue anymore I'm like, well, that, that'll kind of put you in your place for a little bit, honey. I said, because we're grown men. It's not going to change anytime soon. We, I mean, because me and Donnie think a lot alike. We're very similar. We have the same favorite cereal, which is Frosted Mini Wheats. Oh, um, that's my favorite yeah. cereal. Are you kidding me? The brown oh, sugar, wow. the brown sugar ones. Yeah, that, I, love, ones I love those ones best. too. Oh no, we had a thing. <laughs> if you get a challenge, did you, did you see, I think I tagged you one. Did you, did you see my, my thing from... A couple of weeks ago, I started naming all my, my top 16 favorite basketball plays, my top 16 favorite cereals, my top 16 favorite huh. movies. I did a whole thing. Yeah. When you get a chance, I'm going to scroll down a little bit more. Okay. You'll see it right there in the middle. Because I want okay. to, because a, a lot of the new fans who've been coming in and, and, and discovering me, you know, a la Blockhead, you know, community, mm -hmm. and of course mm -hmm. the P-Funk, and then of course my ties with Prince, because Morris Day is one of my very best friends too, the last 20, 30 something years. And a lot of people who have discovered my music and my artistry, they're learning more about me on the flip side of all that, besides the albums and the music and my history with, with some of these guys. But let me just make this, this note real quick. Um, the thing which was so crazy is because way before there was any idea of me linking up with the new kids, when I was on Twitter, a lot of the blockhead community had already been embracing me because mm -hmm. I think one probably got her name. I can't, she's she probably gone. I, I don't know where she is now, but um, this one girl had saw these tweets. I was, you know, because at that time, I remember I'm self-marketing. I have no publicist. I'm marketing. I'm on Twitter. I'm just rambling. I'm, I'm, I'm typing what I feel about music, about politics, history. I'm, I'm building my whole shit. Yeah. So I started talking about music. Of course, we'll be going to talk about more than anything else because I'm an artist with a lot of history. And I started talking up giving, I started giving an education on, 
how group structures work. A lot of fans don't understand how groups actually work. So I gave them the real because of my knowledge and me being in one and then me knowing, you know, what it's like. And somebody just said, hey, Law, I heard you talking about groups. I'm just very curious. What is your take on new kids on the block? And I shook my head. I said, they're among my top five influences. And she was like, oh, my God, you're, you're not from here. You're not. You're, you're, you're out of this world. And then all of a sudden, she started telling a lot of her friends, hey, look, we got a, we got a male blockhead up here. And I understood what she meant, because let's keep it honest. We're not used to it. That, I know, no, 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 no. Not only that, but here's where it gets deeper when it comes to new kids and new addition. And matter of fact, all boy band and R&B male groups. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. While the other guys in my hood were hating, not all of them were, but a lot of them were. Mm-hmm. A lot of the hood boys were hating because, you know, of course, if you got a girl that you like and she's screaming for Ralph and 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 John and, and Joey, you know, mm-hmm. you're going to feel a certain way. But see, me and my brother and my cousins, because we was already notorious in our hood with the girls. So for me, honest, I mean, I'm being honest. I mean, we were. Yes. I mean, we, we, we the Taylor boys. I mean, we did. This is before any type of record deal industry, anything like that. That's why our confidence and our security, because we didn't go through that whole insecure phase of what yeah. if I'm not good looking enough? What if I'm not? Because I started learning that 13, 14. When I started talking my grandfather, I didn't realize that some of these girls like these nappy-headed boys from, from Albany Projects, Marcy Projects, St. Mark's Avenue. So that gave me a confidence at 13 that mm-hmm. most kids on my age didn't have. But it all started when I went to go see New Edition and New Kids on the Block in concert during my formative years. Because seeing the girls scream over them while all the other guys were hating, I was studying, you know why? Because I'm yeah. like, I want to make the girls scream for me like that. And wouldn't you know, I did my very first public school talent show singing New Edition's Lost in Love. And as soon as I hit that first line and the girls in some of the other classes who didn't like me because I was a class clown and I did a lot of crazy shit in, in school, um, they screamed for me. Mm-hmm. This, this, this wasn't church. You know, church, you know, the court, they clap for you. And like, that lost can say, that little boy can say. I was getting all that stuff. Oh, he can dance. Go do. Hey, Lord, do that moonwalk, baby. Do that moonwalk. Now, you know, I don't like all that <laughs> hip-hop stuff. No, you know how you know how old aunties are. I, I ain't into all that hip-hop stuff, but, you know, when you say and do that Michael Jackson, you, you, you're going to be somebody. So that's so having your peers who are your age mm-hmm. yell for you, especially when they're good-looking girls, especially if it's the one girl you actually liked and she didn't really... Um, <laughs> gravitate towards you at that time. We talking about third, fourth grade. You know, back then it was, will you go out with me? That's yes or no, you know that. Yeah. So the thing is that um, it gave me more confidence, but it showed me that it was okay to be that guy. Cause mm-hmm. I didn't want to be in the guy in the audience who was hating. That's the worst kind of guy. Look, you're gonna laugh. I still see it now. Did you see that recent clip? I think it was one of the early shows where they had just, I think they had just stopped doing, they had just got through doing right stuff. And there was a guy in the audience that was going like this because he was around, he was, sur- he was blockhead surrounded. And he was like, I want to say to you, no, Donnie, I want to say to that guy right there covering your ears, trust and believe me. A lot of guys tried that for years and it didn't work. And they went crazy. <laughs> it's true. I was laughing, yo, I was laughing my ass off because it's the truth. And the thing was just that for me, it gave me that. You know what I mean? So when when people like when 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 the nineties came hard with Drew Hill, Silk, Boys to Men, mm-hmm. H Town, High Five, and you know, and, and Troop and all those guys, yeah. every group of that caliber, 
all we did was watch videotapes. When they would come on our senior hall, that's when our senior hall was the gateway. If you want to learn the latest, I remember when Color Me Bad was on, um, when they did All For Love, because, you know, Mark, and Color Me Bad, um, Mark was the best dancer. So the thing is that, because mm -hmm. as people that don't know, Mark's brother did the choreography for Color Me Bad. His older uh -huh, brother. So, okay. So Mark and Mark, and he's one of my favorite singers as well. But um, the thing was, is that um, they had this one routine that they did for um, All For Love. And thank God for, I still have my VHS play, believe it or not. I still have my VHS. On I'm VCR picturing on this dance in my head as we speak. I can yeah, you remember probably, the look, video. You know, you know yeah. like I know, I still have my VCR and all my VHS tapes. I still have them. I still have all of my archives. And yeah. I just remember that excitement of being a young student and knowing that if Boys to Men or New Edition or anybody was going to be on the Arsenio Hall show, my mother, that's the only time that my mother would let me stay up late on the mm. school night because I have my VCR tape ready. Yep. Mind you, there was no DVD unless you, you only had two options you wanted to learn from the best. Go to the show or make sure you had the VHS ready to record. Yep. And that's what trained everything. I mean, not just not just even with um, not just with hip hop and R and B, but even with rock groups. I, I got I I have a DVD and a VHS of Kiss rehearsing without no, without without makeup. Yeah. Everybody don't have everybody don't have that. I, I, I have that. I think it's safe for me to say that the Arsenio Hall show was the gateway for everything for me that became the music I loved. Everything about everything was Arsenio. All the Absolutely. time. Mariah was... Carey's first TV performance where I fell in love with Mariah Carey's voice. Mm -hmm. Arsenio Hall. Everybody. Paula would go on there. You know, Madonna, yeah, Janet. Yeah, NWA and Snoop on there. That, that's 92, 93. So, Everybody. again, it, it's just, and then when, when when new kids wanted to make a statement, they knew they knew where to go. Yeah. So the thing is, is that it's more of a reason why New Edition and New Kids on the Block are forever ingrained in the fabric of the Planet 12 sound in addition to Prince, Stevie Wonder, Jimi Hendrix, and James Brown. I and mean, then even Bobby Brown as an individual, that's a whole other conversation on its own. Um, it, it, it's, you know, for me, I, I'm the most happiest when any compliment is given to me. I don't try to, what I always try to do is I mix everything up into one pot of gumbo. So you're gonna get that influence, you're gonna get a whole bunch of other stuff. But mm -hmm. I love when people say to me, yeah, man, you got that Bobby Brown new edition in it. I saw some of them. I said, well, yeah, of course. I'm not like we, you know, and 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 when and when Biv comes on my thing or he hits me up or texts me or when Ralph calls me and be like, yo, that video you just did, we I said, yeah, I, I said, I was hoping you did. I said, I wanted you to see how we incorporated some of the other stuff. But I said, yeah, but you always put your own thing on it, man. That's what we love about you. And that's mm. to me, that is worth more than any platinum record or any mm -hmm. Grammy that I would. If, that I would ever get in this music industry. I Amen. have the love and support of all of my heroes who are still living, even the ones who passed away, who I got a chance to meet and hang out with before they before they passed away. But the mm -hmm. ones who are here now, who I looked up to, I mean, you know, um, when my older brother got a chance to hang out with Lionel Richie because he was in Vegas and I, I gave him a pass and everything, he got to go. And he told, he said, you gotta understand something, Mr. Richie. He said, you know, my little brother, would wake up singing Penny Lover, trying to walk like you, trying to do the things that you do in the video and stuff like that. So to see him doing shows with you and hanging out with him, it makes me proud as a big brother to see that come together. So see what I mean? Moments like that for me 
is what reminds me of why I never gave up, even though the odds were against me at each and every point in turn, especially being an independent artist, because that's not easy, as you know. It's not easy to have to navigate in the changes of the music industry, but that's why I always say, stay healthy, stay dehydrated, and stay focused and stay on top of your business so that you can be able to be healthy and win in this game on your own terms. And that's exactly what's been happening with me. So getting the support of, of, of Donnie and the rest of the crew and New Edition, man. Imagine how, imagine my, my eight-year-old self, my 12-year-old self, I've been to every New Edition concert there was. So the thing is that I've been to every tour since I was a kid. So for me, it's like mm. from being eight years old and watching the Westbury Music Fair and then to the culture tour with them and Jodeci and Charlie Wilson, it's just like full circle. It's, it's crazy. And, you know, and, I, and I'm proud to call Ralph and Viv two of my closest friends, just like Danny, you know, it's like Danny and Donnie. So it's like, you know, mm -hmm. it's interesting. It's very interesting. <laughs> and knowing that going into the future that these collaborations are going to happen is really exciting. And now I want to tell everybody about what's coming out so that they can go and get the, go listen, go embrace it. What, what's, what do you have coming up? Well, the first single off my upcoming political social album mm -hmm. is called America's Inception. And that will be released this Friday. Great. And the crazy part of the name of the album is called Humanity 101 Pandemic Paradise Paradox. Okay. Um, definitely without question written during most of the pandemic. And the thing was that I wasn't even trying to go there because the thing with me is that I've always been very outspoken in my views and things of that nature for those who've been following me long enough. And to, and to much people's avail for them not to be in my page or to be like, okay, there's he go again. Cause I tell people on time, I don't rant, I do truths. Mm -hmm. See ranting to me is some people that people I like to hear themselves talk. I'm not that guy. Mm -hmm. If I'm talking to you, I have something to say. Mm -hmm. Some people like to hear themselves talk because they want to sound important. I'm not that guy. So it finally hit me one day between my trip to Minneapolis and going to the Minneapolis graveyard, that's what they call it. And then, of course, with George Floyd and a lot of different scenarios, um, I decided it was time to finally do an album that would become my what's going on. And in case people didn't recognize what I'm talking about, um, Marvin Gaye's What's Going On album in my humble opinion, is the greatest R&B pop record and most relevant album mm. in the history of music. Because everything he talked about in that album 40-something years ago, we're still dealing with now. Mm -hmm. Look at the third verse in, um, well, actually the fourth verse. The fourth verse in Inner City Blues. Crime is increasing. Trigger happy policing. Yep. Don't look too far from what we're seeing now. Um, bills pile up, sky high, send that boy off to die. Money, we make it. Before we see it, you take it. It makes me want to holler the way they do my life. He's talking about the government. He's talking about the infrastructure of America. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's funny because everybody wants to sing what's going on, what's going on, but they don't realize the whole fight of that album was a universal theory but it was still rooted in the black experience. That's why when people try to bring up the whole soldier thing and, oh, you should sell it. I had to block one fan not too long ago, which is crazy. You know, we no longer fans. And I, I really know I'm at a point in my life where 
um, I don't need a whole lot of friends. And if if my if if my if if me being oppressed benefits you or my people, if you don't see what we're seeing right now, there's no we can't be friends. I, I just it's, it's it's unrealistic because the thing is just that for me, I'm gonna side with people of any color, black, white, every orientation, straight, gay, it doesn't matter. We are all the common denominator because they don't even like their own. These old white men who are in office, they don't even like, they don't even like their own kind of the people who are not like them. Mm. And see, I always tell people all the time, the people who don't care and be like, you should be grateful to live in this country. We have soldiers that fought on Independence Day. I said, do you know what Independence Day was for, for black men in America and black women in America? You know, do you think Donnie Wahlberg wears a public enemy shirt because it's fashionable? Hell no. Donnie knows. Donnie grew up in Boston, which a lot of racial tension in Boston was crazy. Yeah. And, and here's Donnie wearing a public enemy shirt because he knew what Chuck D was talking about. It was a, from a militant standpoint, but the truth was on all cylinders. So my thing is that um, I can't be in that position to stand still. You know, I figured, okay, I put the third album out. It's doing real good. You know, my usual Planet 12 funk party, hip hop. You know, I love you, baby. I love you, baby. Like that kind of songs that make sense. And then having fun with lyrical wordplay, like I like to do as a hip hop artist and then going straight rock and roll. I said, you know what? It's time to make an album expressing my views. And especially because after I released this album, I am no longer talking about politics and social stuff on my social medias. Mm -hmm. Everything that I feel about the current state of the world and where we were even before is going to be all in this album. It's supposed to be an EP. EP's only five songs. But yeah. every time I looked on the news, I went back to the studio. I'm like, I got to talk about these things because I don't want anybody to be able to say I didn't care, that I wasn't informative, and that I didn't speak my piece. So the two main um, influences for that, again, was Marvin Gaye's What's Going On album and Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation album, which is basically her Marvin Gaye album. That's, that's her what's going on because mm -hmm. people don't realize River Nation was a bold step. It was a very bold step considering that Control was such a huge album and it's party, it's funky, it's funky. It's, uh, and here she comes with this very dark but slamming ass concept. Yeah. People of the world today, are we looking for a better way of life? We are part of a Rhythm Nation. You know what I mean? Those lyrics, State of the World, um, Knowledge. Yeah. You know, in, in, in between all the sexy, nice stuff that she did on that record, but the thing was, the message was clear. So this album is going to have 10 to 11 songs on it. And um, I just I just work from different perspectives. So you're going to hear, I mean, we, we, we got some funk on there, of course, some funk, some hip hop, some mm -hmm. rock and roll. I'm also doing spoken word because before I became an MC, I wrote poems. So for me, when the spoken word thing became popular during the, the mid 90s and and even more so now than it's ever been, they even have now they finally have a genre and they finally have a category on, on, on the Grammys. It's crazy. Like, I really know. I said, you know, I'm going to do some spoken word. So one of my favorite songs on the album is called Politicians Are Not God. Mm. So yeah, it's a real deep one. It's, it's very yeah. in your face. Yes, there is going to be some offensive language for people who are probably guessing. I'm letting it all out. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. putting all of it on there. And I already made it clear. Hey, I may even I may even lose some fans, but that's what being an artist is all about. I'm not going to sit here and play nice in a world that's overturning, yes, pun intended, that's overturning by, by the day. And the thing is just that there has to be more knowledge spread about this. A lot of 
a lot of the fans, even some of the blockheads and aliens and for lifers, some of them don't know the truth about certain things concerning our government. I was a political science major. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. people don't know, like I was a political science major, so I knew about politics at a thing. And as everybody mostly knows, I am the proud son of a Black Panther mother. My mother was in the Black Panthers in the New York City chapter. So wow. this is, yeah, heavy, right? Yeah. <laughs> so this, for me, this is kind of like, <laughs> you know, a wheelhouse for me, but the truth needs to be spoken. So after that, when people start asking me, after the album comes out four months later, we done did a run and everything, we'll be like, hey, Lord, what do you feel about so-and-so? Buy the album. What do you feel about um, the president? Buy the album. Mm-hmm. That's going to tell you everything that you need to know about laws, social views, and political views. When you put those things together, it equals humanity, even though that doesn't stand what it stands for. But mm-hmm. you will see the humanity of a person when you know those two things about him, how they are socially and what they are like politically. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it's a lot of a lot of things that bump heads. I mean, even the block, I mean, I'll talk about it now. Even the blockhead community, I've seen people go to war. And all I said to them is, you know, while y'all sitting here battling back and forth on who's a better political party or who's a better president, guess what? They're all laughing at us. They get to go to their glass crystal palaces and live while we struggle and starve. And y'all sitting here arguing about who's fighting for us. None of them motherfuckers are fighting for us. None of them. Mm-hmm. None of them. And that's my opinion. It's not going to change. And I have the facts to back up certain things because all you need to do is look at the timeline. See, a lot of people don't look at the timeline. Most people are part of political parties because my daddy was a Republican. My mom was a Republican. My mom was a I'm being real with you. They don't know. Look, I promise you, if I put them on the firing line right now, the same way how me and you are talking face to face here right now, if I brought up some very key elements of political infrastructure, they wouldn't know a damn thing. You know what I mean? So I'm not challenging my audience to certain things. Mm-hmm. So about, oh, well, that person just got shot because it's so, yeah, good cop. I said, we never said they weren't good cop. I said, but I want you to do me a favor. Send me a sheet or send me a photo of 20 white people that have been killed by black cops. Yeah. And guess what? Nobody, nobody had any evidence. Mm-hmm. I said, the defense rests. I rest my case. There's your answer right there. If you don't see that there's a problem with this, if you don't see that, you're blind. Mm-hmm. And I ain't got time to be correcting your eyes. In the words of Amanda Seals, I'm on my trampoline. I don't, I don't have the time. That's why I said I want to do an album. I'm dropping a lot of knowledge on this album. Yeah, there's a lot of anger in it. There's a lot of concern. There's a lot of sensitivity and uncertainty because um, another song I have on the album is called Women, Guns, and Babies. Yeah, I'm going. I'm going it's here. Deep. I'm, it's deep. I'm going and it's, here. it's important. These are things that need to be said. And I'm glad. Yeah. It's our future. So the first single, America's Inception, which is funky as hell, it, it definitely was influenced by the Beatles, Slide of Family Stone, and Prince. So you'll hear those influences in that particular song. But um, mm-hmm. it, it definitely, I wanted to be the first single because it got the most response I put up on my SoundCloud. And people's like, oh yeah, I like this song, I like the message too. And then we debuted at a, the last sold out shows that I did, we debuted the song. So um, the reception pretty much, I'm like, okay, that's probably what I need to know right there. So the fact that I can do a song like that, speaking truth and people want to hear it and people like the groove too. I feel like this, you're going to groove with a met, Earth, Wind & Fire. They're the perfect examples. Their grooves were intoxicating, but mm-hmm. the message never lost. 
You're a shining star. No matter who you are, shining bright to see. Jika Julie, baby. Shit is funky as hell. But mm -hmm. the message is clear. Read the lyrics. A lot of people don't read the lyrics. Read the lyrics while you're jamming. Understand why Maurice White is a genius. <laughs> Understand that the late, great Maurice White, God bless his soul. You know, I miss him. I miss him so much. You know, he understood the universal plain theory of music and art and religion and all those things combined. Look at all the Earth and the Fire album covers. Yeah. Like he knew, he understood it. And he wrote from that perspective. He said, we got a message for you, but if we don't have these, not, if we don't have these dynamics, all those little musical breaks that we did, that's to get your attention because we got a message for you. Mm -hmm. That was it. So this is what this album feels like for me. If you like the beats, you like the harmonies and the way I do the thing on this record, that's the fun part of it. But the messages on this upcoming album, we, we, we you know, it is what it is. We're going in. And the new ones, uh, the new song this Friday coming out. Yes, this Friday. And we, it's going to be all this album. So when I say that, we were recording at the beginning of July. So this this episode is still a little ways away, but that means everything should be out and ready to listen to by the time you've heard this, this is episode. True. This is this is true. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't be remiss to be so extremely happy about it because on a lot of different levels, um, any album I've ever made is a statement. You know, my first three albums are still doing well. So I, I know and hope that this one will too. I think it'll get to the people. I'll put it like this. I'll make it easier for the fans who listen to right now. If you want to hear the unapologetic raw truth about America, our government, and the society that we live in, the last 50 years, even going back a little bit further to 400 years. Mm. This is the album for you to listen to, to love, to groove on, but more importantly, get educated. Mm. If you don't agree with the things that I speak about, if you still want to hold on to this fantasy land of America and, and waving the flag and all this other stuff, and you still want to hold on to your political connections, like we say, um, protection for the collection, for the connection. Put that mm -hmm. together. Say that three times. I know you can get that. Then this album is not for you, and I don't give a fuck if you don't buy it, if you don't listen to it. It's not for you. It's for people who want to grow and learn. The title Stay song... Teachable. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Oh, there you go. Say it again. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Stay teachable. You know, the entire people in the name of all of my heroes who died, of course, it's dedicated to Eric Gardner and George Floyd and um and, mm -hmm. and Sandra Bland, you know, like all the people who we lost and the fight of these struggles that continue to daunt. And when people wonder why my number one favorite rap song of all time is Fuck the Police, it's because the statement that was made, not because all police aren't bad. I mean, that's that's like no shit Sherlock moment. Of course, we know all police ain't bad, but mm -hmm. we're talking about the infrastructure of yeah. the police. How was how how it was created? See, I put that post up on my Twitter, I put it up on my Facebook for people who want to learn. I want to show them. This is not hearsay. This is this is not photocopy. This is actual documented proof. Mm -hmm. You gotta remember, if I wasn't doing music, I'd be a journalist because I was, you know, that, that was my major in, in in college. So the information and source that I get is from the source source. I don't do hearsay and gossip. Yeah. For people who want to want to remain teachable, like you said, but for people who just want to learn and finally understand why a black man like myself has to speak on these things and why we have to tell certain people, no, it's not OK for you to say that. It's not OK for you to touch my touch my my, um, my wife or my girlfriend's hair. 
Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, certain things because people don't understand the, the, the yep. connotation behind that because they're projected in white privilege and all those things that come along with it. And you say that to them, it's like, yeah. what do you mean privilege? I work hard for what I got. I'm like, not <laughs> you're not understanding what you're the not understanding is. what. And, and I've been telling this none to mind you. There were some fans that actually hit me up in the DMs that really wanted to know. They was, and I could feel their sincerity. That's why I gave them the answer. I'm like, said, no, Lord, no bullshit. I'm a fan of yours. I, I love and I'm hearing you. But I need to know what is white. I, I really don't know what that means because me being mm-hmm. white. And I broke it down to her. And I've made it very clear. I even sent her links and examples of other people's perspective from the Black experience to let them know because they have a better definition than me sometimes. Some people have a more shorter definition. Like, this is what white people, they have a yeah. more diagram and visual. And I give well, that to them. I've had an experience where where I had to be and remain and be teachable because I remember when the time when the Chappelle show came out, right? Um, so so around that time, oh, there, there was a large white audience for the Chappelle show and me being a white yeah. person, I'm enjoying the, the jokes and the comedy, but I'm not uh-huh. understanding what they truly mean to black people. So at the time I'm making some of these jokes with black friends and not realizing that that's not my place to say, you know what I mean? So that was teachable for me as a white person to realize that that's, you know, those kind of jokes, like you got to be really thoughtful about the things you say. And that's something that I've always, always been teachable about and apologetic for at that time. But the thing is that, but but here's the thing, but here's the thing about you. And I love, and I I love you for this so much besides your amazing personality and and the podcast to go along with it. The -hmm. thing I love about your energy and what I get through here is because you were willing. See the difference? Yeah. yeah. When you're willing to admit that you didn't know. Now, mind you, yeah. keep in mind, with most of my white friends who I'm close to, mm-hmm. they say the, they can say the Chappelle jokes because we all because we all say them anyway. But the thing is, is that the ones who got common sense, and sometimes some sense is just not that common, unfortunately. True. Some people don't, some people don't know. But the thing is that it's up to me to correct them. Let them know, okay, yeah, I don't think I have to say this to you, but you'll know. But then when I say it, they know where it's coming from. It's like the same way when I talk about white people, my white fans don't get offended. They start laughing with me. I'm laughing now. Y'all know, everybody knows that when I stereotype, I'm joking. I'm not, this is not in any way, even though, but you know, you got a point that I said, well, that's why the joke is the joke, because basically there is a truth to this. Don't get it wrong. But the thing is, is that. I'm not looking at it like, yeah, you know, because these white people know. I said, no, that's not how I think. It's mm-hmm. simply because that we can be in a room with each other and have these discussions and these dialogues and understanding and why these are things, especially for me as a black man, because you got to remember, they're profiting off of the experience. That's why I have to tell people the difference between culture appropriation and culture appreciation. Yeah. And I, w- and I will be the one to tell you who's the appropriator and who's the appreciator. I've been in this industry long enough on a musical level to tell you who is who. Just recently, mm-hmm. I had to get some get I had to get some folks together about Elvis because it's long-standing rumor, and then yeah, when it was a rumor, Elvis was not a racist. Mm-hmm. Elvis studied and was mentored by black blues and gospel artists personally. Mm-hmm. Not at home watching TV. <laughs> mm-hmm. He was raised under that in Memphis. He was the only white kid singing in church. Sounds familiar? Eminem, the only white kid in Seven Eight Mile that had an all black crew. Mm-hmm. Vanilla Ice, the only kid in Texas that hung around an all black crew. Mm-hmm. See what I mean? It's no different. 
So the thing is, is that the parallel lines have been discussed. They had a big discussion. I was like, Jackie Wilson is Elvis's idol. Elvis studied him. Elvis and Jackie Wilson were great friends over the years. Matter of fact, when, um, when, when Jackie got into a coma in 75, Elvis paid for all his hospital bills. See what I mean? Like they don't, they don't yeah. talk about this stuff because the thing mm -hmm. is, is that we got plagued with so much misinformation that people had these theories. And then, you know, um, you know, Chuck, he's my big brother. I love him. Sorry, Chuck. <laughs> you know, even though he put out this statement in fight the power, I understood the vitality of it because it's a wrong statement because he wasn't, he wasn't racist. But the thing is what he said after that was the most important thing. John Wayne, who was a racist without question. I learned mm -hmm. that. Yeah. You know, that's my play face that motherfucker man John Wayne because I'm black and I'm proud, I'm ready, I'm hyped because I'm am. Most of my heroes don't appear on no stamp. Mm -hmm. That was the realest shit ever said. And if you look today, when Marvin Gaye got his stamp five years ago, I was there because I'm close to the family. Norna and Jana are two of my best friends as well. And to see Marvin Gaye get his own stamp for the U.S. Post Office, I, I damn near almost shed a tear. I'm like, he's not here physically to watch it, but I know he can see this in heaven. Like, who would have ever thought that Marvin Gaye would get on the stamp. And we have a lot of heroes. Jimmy Hendrix is on the stamp. So it's mm -hmm. deeper than just the infrastructure of America. It's this is why certain things are being put into place and everything just can't be, um, well, you know, um, you know, just kumbaya and it, it, everything. Sometimes you just hear hardcore truth to understand why we speak on these things. No, yeah. we're not angry. We're mad as hell. It's a difference. Because the thing is, is that there are so many different things that a lot of, White folks and even some other races don't get either when I speak on this because humanity, my album, it's about all of us. The song Humanity is about us standing together, black or white, straight or gay, it's about us standing together mm -hmm. and fighting against a government that does not care about us. But the rest of the album is a little bit of the humanity side of it where it includes all, but then of course, the black perspective, which is the main perspective because me as a black man, I have to talk about these things to my audience and even my white audience too. It's not just, but I make music because I don't make music for, for black people. I make music for everybody. Mm -hmm. It just so happens that I'm a black artist, but I make my music for everybody. If you love funky beats, if you love hip hop, rock and roll, jazz and classical and country music like I do, my mm -hmm. albums on all levels are for you, it's for the audience. So, um, so thank you for saying that because I, I really, I really hope that people get the message behind this album and hopefully I won't lose a whole bunch of fans. I always say if I lose you that quickly, you were never a fan to begin with, or you just don't really want to hear the truth being spoken, which is, which is the latter for me always. But the people That's who stuck with the me, case. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The people that stuck with me and they kind of know they, they rocking with me. They're, people are really looking forward to it. They heard the three songs I put up on SoundCloud. They were like, Man, I can't wait for that. I say, yeah, man, it's coming. We almost done with the mixes and everything like that. It's, it's coming together really, really nice. So until then, um, I'm gonna put out two or three singles in a row, and then mm -hmm. we're gonna announce the date for the um for the release of the, the official album. It's gonna be available on all digital outlets everywhere. I am so excited and so grateful to, uh, that we had this chat today. Such a good time, you know. Amazing. And Thank you so yeah, much. Thank you, and just being able to talk about all types of things was incredible. So it's just, well, let me to, just think, no, 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 absolutely. I mean, let me just make this clear again. Your podcast is the name is what is needed. That's why I went up the first, like I told you the first time I, I couldn't wait. I, I, I followed you immediately. I'm like, I, I didn't even wait for it. I said, 
this is the kind of podcast I love to go on because we get to talk about the fundamentals of our 80s and 90s pop culture on mm. all cylinders from movies to TV. And people be so shocked and surprised that I was a fan of Beverly Hills 9021. No, I said, are you kidding me? I wanted, I said, Brenda, <laughs> said, Brenda could get it. You kidding me? I was, look, 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 look. Mm. This is no surprise to nobody. My first white girl crushes were Jane Whelan and Belinda Carlisle from the Go-Go's. And those are my friends now. <laughs> oh, the Go-Go's. Yeah. Yes. Those are my first white girl crushes because for one, I was already a diehard Go-Go's fan. And keep in mind, mm -hmm. my sister was the only black girl going to an all-valley school in California. So mm -hmm. when she brought home the Beauty and the Beat record, it changed my world forever. Because up until then, up until with the exception of Sheila E., I never saw female musicians. So the Go-Go's were actually my first, and then of course, Climax, because I always call Climax the, um, the, the Black Go-Go's, because basically they, the Climax were to R&B girl, girl band-wise what the Go-Go's was into rock and roll. So it's the same type of attitude. Yeah. But the thing is that Climax can play some rock too. They, they rock their asses off as well. So yeah, so how funny is that? I went from crushing on two of the members Studying them as a musician because um you know Charlie Charlie Cabbage guitar player was influenced. Gina Shock is one of the to this day one of the deadliest drummers that can out drum all the guys. She's she's a beast. Even, she's she, she, she done she's been on the show. What an honor! Yeah. Oh, she was on the show. Oh wow. Gina was on the show. Yeah. Oh my god! I gotta get on my <laughs> I gotta get on my podcast. See, Gina yeah. is the, let me say let me say how she was saying. Gina Shock is the motherfucking truth, period. Be more in the house. Like she, I love her attitude. I love her whole spunk. And again, that, that woman has been through surgeries and all kinds of stuff. And that woman can still get up there and beat out. I, I said, I, I will put my money on Gina Shock against any one of these dudes. Mm -hmm. Gina will wipe the fucking floor with them. So to go from being to, to being fans and, and, and being fans of them and studying them and crushing on Belinda and, and Jane to now them being my homies for the last 10, 15 years now, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty intense, you know, and, I, and usually mm -hmm. I'm not the only black go-go fan in, in the first or second row. I love it. They look at me like, wow, he knows all the words. I'm like, uh, yeah, stop stereotyping me. Enjoy the show. Shut the fuck up. But... <laughs> 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 Oh, I'm so happy. <laughs> yeah, this, this was great. This is one of the yeah. best interviews I've ever done. I thank you so much. I love it. Thank you. I'm glad. I'm oh, glad yeah. you so Make sure I get your information. Make sure I get your information for real. Thank you. Hey, kids, put down that Tamagotchi and listen for a second. You know, you can follow us on Twitter at Nostalgia Dope, Instagram at Dope underscore Nostalgia. Visit our website at www.dopenostalgia.com or pick up the phone and call us at 780-851-8785. This podcast is licensed by SoCan because we believe that artists should be paid for their work.